the Lord's grace. Would you to turn with me this evening to Philippians chapter 2. I want to read perhaps the most familiar part of this epistle to the Philippians. I alluded to it briefly this morning. It's not my intention to preach directly from this this evening as you'll see shortly. But I want to read this familiar passage often referenced even as a hymn from verse 5 in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His inspired Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight, as we come, Lord, we've sung a hymn that if it were merely the even exalted meditation of a hymn writer, we would shudder to sing. But it's the truth of your word. Bold we approach. Not because of any worthiness in us, but because you have bid us to come. You have provided a means for us to come. You promise that any that come through those means, through your Son, will in no wise be cast out. And so we come boldly tonight to the throne of grace as joint heirs with Christ, as adopted sons, as those tonight who would ask for the help of your Spirit to remember again the means whereby we are able so bless us as we meditate together and as we partake of these emblems to remind us of our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often the case that when we come to a communion Sabbath that I seek some connection with our morning message and what we come and bring around the table many ways because my mind and study and preparation has been in that passage through the week and well there are pieces of it that don't always make it into the message and hopefully there's some connection not too distant a connection between anything we're preaching on and a remembrance of Christ well I had much in my mind as I was preparing and then ultimately giving those four terms for our meditation this morning of drawing parallel to those terms themselves and our Savior as we come tonight to the table. 
But if you remember the morning, there's not necessarily a clearly distinct line with each of those. We may labor, hopefully not in an inappropriate way, but in a very appropriate way. To see those four terms I put before you with regard to how we treat one another, what we are for and with one another, and what our Savior is for us. I won't give a test who remembers the words from this morning, so I'll give them to you again. How gracious I've become as an aged, gray-haired seminary guy now. But the first term I suggested this morning in that portion of Romans is humility. We are to not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Certainly here is a term that has direct connection to our Savior as we consider Him tonight in the Gospel. We've read this hymn to Christ in Philippians 2. We see and perhaps are very familiar with those ever-descending stages of His humiliation. And then, of course, those equally ascending parallel steps of His exaltation now in glory. But when we think of humility among ourselves, you think of all the legitimate, quite obvious, very logical ways in which we have the capacity to, with right understanding, with, with good thought, with sober thoughts about ourselves, to be humble when we interact one with another. You think even of the most gifted, the most studied. It's interesting when you pursue study. You learn a little, you think you know a lot. You learn a lot and you realize how little you know. You can come to be one of the giants in your field. And then you recognize that you have peers. You have those that know more than you do. You're even more cautious with the pronouncements that you make. Well, again, we could go on. We have every reason to be humble when we interact with ourselves. When we interact with one another. And yet, we are constantly tempted toward pride. It's an irony. It's the flesh. But when we think of Christ, the humility that Christ bestowed, there is no logic, there is no obvious connection between the humility that He manifests and ours. We're fallen, sinful, depraved creatures. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And yet He chose to humble Himself. He became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross, which among men was designed not merely to be a slow and agonizing death, 
but it was meant to be a display, a humiliating display. Humility of Christ. What an example for us as we would be humble one with another. Our second word from this morning was diversity. Well, here's the challenge in coming from that message to this, and yet not really so much. When we looked at the passage in Romans 13, we see there in Paul's familiar imagery of the body and the different members of the body. He doesn't go as far as he does, did in other passages, but you know, the fingers and the toes and the, the nose and the ears and the sight and the smell. All those different parts of the body and we need all of them. And so for us, this diversity is the reality that none of us has every gift. None of us is to play every part that is necessary for the function of the body. We each have our own part and place to play. We each come to the realization that we need the other parts. Those things that we might not think are so necessary. Forget statistic, but I don't know if it's a statistical thing, but our big toe. You think, well, you know, you got four more, but lose that one. A lot of the ability that you have physically is gone. The big toe doesn't seem to be a real vital, important part of the body. But it is. Well, that diversity among ourselves, again, none of us is everything in the body. In Christ, He is everything. He is all in all to us for our salvation. He fulfills all the roles, all the pieces of what is necessary for us to be saved. You can't expand on all of these this evening. But even as you think of His mediatorial offices, He's prophet. But yet he's not just a prophet. He's what the prophet preaches. He's the prophet and he's the message. The priest. He isn't just the priest. He's the priest and he's the offering. We have in the past, gone through the, the different feasts, the different offerings, the Old Testament ritual for Israel. There are times, Day of Atonement, notably. There's more than one animal that's needed. There's a sacrifice the priest makes, then there's later the scapegoat that is let loose in the wilderness. The animal itself that's slain, and then we think of the priest who has to offer first for his own sins, we're reminded in Hebrews, and then for the sins of others. Not so with Jesus. But yet, Jesus is priest and lamb. He is our king. 
And yet one of the glories of this king, we saw it in Philippians 2, he took upon him the form of a servant. Servant, sometimes in Scripture we think of servanthood and we can extend that even to the realm of slavery and we think of the ultimately low position. It's not necessary in Scriptures. And actually there are many places where the servant is an exalted position. The servant of the Lord. You think about Abraham's servant Eliezer that was master of his house. But whether it is the servant in an exalted sense or the servant in the most menial sense. Our Savior washing the disciples' feet. Peter protesting. Noble. Peter. We might think I could have been right there with Peter. Oh, you're, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the Lord. You can't wash my feet. What does he say? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter, smitten with that truth, Lord, wash all of you. But Jesus is our King. And yet He is our servant. I remember, I don't know, the months, the years of theological transition, coming into the doctrines of grace, more and more, a little piece at a time, my eyes were being opened to truth. Again, I'd heard a lot of preaching, much of it good, on the necessity of serving the Lord of putting away sin, putting away worldliness, and pursuing hard after the things of God. Messages on serving. I was fellowshipping with my dear brother David Brain, just a little ahead of me in the seminary studies in the free church. And he just said, Reggie, have you ever just really let that text grab a hold of you? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. It's not to say there's no service that we perform. There's no labor. There are no good works that we pursue. I mean, Romans 12, 1 and 2. A reasonable service. But in the deepest, most important sense, Jesus didn't come for us to serve Him. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. To give His life ransom. Yes, He's the one we serve. There's, there's some diversity. He's the one we serve. But in the deepest sense, He has served us. He's prophet and He's message. He's priest and He's offering. He's king and He is servant. And you think this one, 
to whom we owe obedience is the one who has rendered full and perfect obedience. This one who is infinitely humbled also is the one who is infinitely exalted. Jesus is all. This morning we spoke of sincerity. A little accommodation to homiletics. section just dealing with genuine love. We read in John's Gospel, as our Lord gathered His disciples unto Himself in those closing hours, really, of His earthly life and ministry in that Passion Week. And it said, having loved His own which were in the world. Think even of that on what we thought of this morning. The world has its own. The world knows its own. Jesus has His own. Jesus knows. He seeks and draws His own out of the world. But it says, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. It's not merely He loved them to the end of His life because His life never ends. He loves them to the uttermost. You think of the sincerity, genuineness of His love for us. And His love is not just hypothetical. It's not just professed. It is expressed. God commendeth His love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There may be occasions, Scripture even reminds us, where someone would give his life for another. But to give his life for his enemies? To give his life for sinners? He has loved us to the uttermost. There is no question. There is no inkling of doubt in the sincerity and the depth of the love of Christ to our souls. I used to say I couldn't get through a communion service without reference to Hebrews 12. I had to say that so often because of the often times that I referenced Hebrews 12 at the table that I kind of put the brakes on, but it's been a while. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. What is joyful? What was the joy set before Him that was so great it moved Him to count the sufferings of the cross, to count enduring the wrath of God as not worthy enough to hold Him back from purchasing that joy. Saving those who lost. 
the genuineness, the sincerity, His love is displayed for us. And what we remember tonight is done in displaying that love. Our last term from this morning, activity. Those different pieces of our interaction that we dealt with. Well, the whole Bible is a reference for the activity of Christ in His dealings with us. He has not been idle. We think of God's works of creation and providence. After proctor a course over the next couple weeks, students are listening to Dr. Baird on tape. I know that's the wrong word. What is tape? You young people ask somebody with gray hair to explain that sometime. But I digress again. But it's been a blessing listening to him lecture through Hebrews. I'm just getting into chapter 4. I might get an hour of that tonight. I'm looking forward to it. But the activity of Christ. His labors for His people. His doing what is necessary. And in our overview, came out of Hebrews 1, His works of creation and providence clearly on display. By whom also He made the world he rules all things. But the work of redemption alongside that. Remember, history is just happening because God chose not to immediately cast Adam and all in him immediately into heaven. But in His promise to send a second Adam to redeem a people, He is allowing history to go forward so that He might fulfill that purpose of redemption. And so in everything that happens, every Pharaoh that's lifted up and put down, Every Jordan that waters are dried up and is crossed. He's active. He's working to bring His people. So all these pieces of our interaction that we considered and summarized this morning are to an infinitely greater degree true of our Savior. Let us remember these works for us tonight. And let us with thanksgiving meditate together as we partake of the elements now. I ask you to take your blue hymnal and turn to number 238.